Before we begin today, I would like to start with a warning. This podcast episode will include discussions of suicide and death. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Connecting the Docs, a podcast from the State Archives of North Carolina, where archivists connect archival materials to fascinating and true stories from the past. We deliver rare and often overlooked topics related to North Carolina's storied history. Now here's your host, John Haran. Hello again. Welcome to Connecting the Docs. This is your host, John Haran. Today we have two guests on the show. Samantha Crisp from the Outer Banks History Center. Hey, John. Hi. And Josh Hager from Government Records. Howdy, John. Nice to be here. Good to have you. This is the second episode in a series inspired by the book and movie Where the Crawdads Sing. Last time we took a look at African-American communities in the Outer Banks and other parts of eastern North Carolina. Today we are going to take a look at school truancy, and particularly a case that went to court from Dare County, connecting the fictional versions of eastern North Carolina with the true stories that we can find through the archives. As we know, Where the Crawdads Sing is a novel by Delia Owens and has been adapted to the big screen by director Olivia Newman. As a quick summary, the book follows Kaya, a young girl growing up in the marshlands of North Carolina. Abandoned by her family, isolated from most of society, Kaya is self-taught and learns how to live on her own and off the land. I do want to say that there has been a a bit of controversy surrounding the author, and we aren't going to talk about that here or in this series. Instead, we are interested in looking at some of the real inspirations for the book. So why don't we get started on an overview of how schools are viewed in the book. In the novel, a few days after her seventh birthday, a truancy officer comes to Kaya's shack and explains that she must go to school. Kai is reluctant, but wants to learn and could use the daily free hot lunch. However, she only lasts one single day. Feeling embarrassed when she doesn't know as much as the other children and is teased by them, she is put in the second grade despite never having gone to school, because according to the school office, The first grade was too crowded. And what difference would it make to Marsh people who do a few months of school, maybe, then never seen again? After her difficult first day, Kaya decides not to go back. The truant officers come back to the shack several times over the next few weeks, but Kaya manages to hide from them. Throughout the rest of the novel, whenever authorities come looking for Kaya, others convince them that she is deceased, so she avoids truancy charges. The novel summarizes the lack of schooling in this manner. Kaya never went back to school a day in her life. She returned to heron watching and shell collecting, where she reckoned she could learn something. And shell collecting and oystering is a great preview for our third episode, where we look at certain foodways in the Outer Banks, including a foray into the oyster wars. But for today, we know that truancy is the focus of the story. And we'll get to the most famous truancy case in the Outer Banks history shortly. Uh, I might say even in North Carolina history. But first... I'd like to turn to Josh to get an overview of school records in the state archives. Josh, what kind of school records can researchers find in a visit to the Raleigh location? A lot, uh, John. Uh, I'm going to try to keep it brief because we could spend several podcasts just going over these record series. Um, But essentially, when you're looking at school records, most people think of county records for schools, and there are a few. And we have like county board of education minutes 
for some counties. Some counties have miscellaneous school records. In fact, the, the file we'll talk about later comes from one of those for Dare County. But most of the school records are from state agencies. Uh, the earliest are common school reports. That's the first time the state government had a foray into organizing schools. They, they're in the mid-19th century, starting around the 1840s uh, through the beginning of the Civil War period. And occasionally those common school reports will list name of students, so they could be useful for genealogical research. After 1868, with the new state constitution uh, during Reconstruction, you have the foundation of the State Board of Education, so the records become a little more regular. But from 1868 to about 1919, the records are entirely administrative in nature. They focus on school construction, financial records, including a series devoted to the state buying up swampland and selling it for the purpose of getting monies to build schools in rural areas. Uh, these records are interesting for historical value, but don't really have much to say in the case of genealogy, specific students, teachers, anything like that. Your really robust school records are going to be starting after 1919 when the uh, state founded the Department of Public Instruction, or sorry, the General Assembly established the Department of Public Instruction. Uh, so starting in 1919 and up to present day, we have a robust collection of records for DPI, as we call it in shorthand. We do have the administrative records for DPI, including correspondence of the superintendent of public instruction. But what most people are interested in are the records that are specific to schools. We have high school and elementary school annual reports that will list um, everything from the number of students, the any construction projects in the schools, to yes, it includes graduates uh, for high schools. Uh, so it's really useful for genealogy research. Uh, we also have preliminary reports for certain years for high schools that will list teachers at the school or new teachers at the school, so that could be useful as well. Uh, between about 1920 and 1950, uh, records of African-American students were stored in a separate division or they were administered by a separate division known as the Division of Negro Education. Uh, that record group includes the same reports that you'd find in the DPI records, but for African-American schools. Obviously, that goes away with Brown versus Board of Education in 54 uh, when the records become integrated. There's also a special subject file within DPI that includes records on a variety of other subjects, including public colleges, normal schools, which is where you had schools to train teachers. On, uh, so a lot of universities were normal schools, uh, school curriculums, and especially a lot of records on Rosenwald schools. Yeah, that's a tremendous amount of records you've you've outlined there. I mean, it's each one of them has subsets and subsets and subsets. So that's amazing. Now, you mentioned Rosenwald schools there at the end. What were they? I think the best place to summarize it is uh, through the State Library of North Carolina. They have an online resource called NCpedia, and here's some excerpts from their definition of the program. From the 1910s to the 1930s, the philanthropic Julius Rosenwald Fund was a major force in North Carolina education. Its matching grants aided in the construction of more than 800 public school buildings for African American children and helped found the University of North Carolina Press in Chapel Hill. Public funds generally covered about half the cost of a school building, with the remainder divided equally between local, private contributions and the Rosenwald Fund. North Carolina led the South in the number of Rosenwald school buildings erected, 813 of the 5,300 total. Largely due to the efforts of leaders such as Nathan Carter Newbold, 
the state's director of black education, which might I add, we have records for in the DNE records. With 46 schools, Halifax County had by far the greatest number of schools in a single county built with Rosenwald funds. Most Rosenwald schools continued to operate across the state until consolidation and racial desegregation in the 1960s closed their doors. Yeah, and it's interesting that it closes with that because uh, we also have oral histories about uh, consolidation, integration, and desegregation, and so and, and a number of other school topics, but those kind of come to mind with, with respect to this, and particularly an interview I did with Sharon Davis. She recalls this definition of Rosenwald schools. So what I think I understand that there was a guy's name was Jul it was either Julian or Julius Rosenwald who was the owner of Sears and Roebuck I believe and he him along with um I think they said Booker T Washington or somebody um they realized that um once slavery was over that the black community still liked facilities for education of the former slaves and their descendants. And he helped finance the building of a lot of these schools, even though I think some of the community, you know, did some fundraisers to help with, um, you know, financing it also. But, um, and I know that there are probably thousands of those schools around the South. Um, and um, a lot of people, you know, like I said, when we were growing up, we never knew the significance of it, but we found out since then. Yeah, her oral history is available in its entirety, where she also mentions her experience growing up in Cleveland, a small town in Rowan County in North Carolina, and where she talks about the Rosenwald School she went to, which was called R.A. Clement. It's interesting that uh, we hear from her about her Rosenwald experience because we do have so many records on the Rosenwald Fund at the State Archives. Uh, in addition to what we already talked about, we have detailed records about the Rosenwald Fund's administration in North Carolina, particularly through the correspondence between the Superintendent of Public Instruction as well as the Superintendent of the Division of Negro Education and the Rosenwald Fund headquarters and officials there in Tennessee. One such letter from the Rosenwald office cautioned North Carolina officials that at least two men had posed as Rosenwald agents at local banks to claim the funds allocated by the Rosenwald Fund for themselves. Uh, if nothing else, this shows that identity theft is certainly not a new problem. And they were telling them to please watch out for these uh, illicit bank robbers. We have a large clutch of these records, as I mentioned, in the Division of Negro Education records. Uh, these are available in our digital collections under the African American Education Collection, along with some other selected works or selected records from the larger uh, Department of Public Instruction record group. We also have a few oral histories that John discussed. Um, in addition to the one with Sharon Davis, we also have others that discuss Rosenwald schools. So it's a major topic for research uh, for anybody who comes to the search room. So there's plenty to look at if you're interested. It's all tremendous, but I did notice that none of those records you mentioned, you didn't mention the word truancy at all. So where, where, did the, where does that come into play? Exactly. Truancy, which by definition is not attending school. <laughs> Let me just make that clear, uh, just in case someone hasn't heard the term, uh, which is, or at least was in this time period, a criminal offense. 
the bulk of the records we have in our collection that are going to mention this case are from the Outer Banks History Center. Uh, so Sam will get to those. They're what's in our special collection. So they have come to us from private channels. As in terms of government records, we do have a record in the Dare County miscellaneous records about the truancy case in question. Uh, some counties do have school records, but the exact composition of those records does vary from county to county. Uh, and there are finding aids for those kind of records available if you ask our uh, team in the public services unit. In the case of Dare County, we have a folder on the criminal action in, in, in question. Um, that is the file that was created in the courts of Dare County from the initial hearing for this truancy case. And we'll hear about that in just a second. It's an exceptional record insofar as other truancy case files are extraordinarily rare. The fact that this file is from the same part of the state where, where the crawdad sing is set is one of those happy coincidences that those of us in the archival profession are always happy to discover. Need archival experience before taking the next step in your career? Explore the possibilities with an internship at the State Archives of North Carolina. Available every fall, spring, and summer, our projects provide opportunities for students to work with digital services, government records, reference, or special collections. Uncover untold stories, process collections, create new metadata, and learn how to digitize. Look behind the scenes at how we preserve NC history and make it accessible for everyone. Learn more at archives.ncdcr.gov support archives. Now back to the show. Let's get to it. Let's turn it over to Sam and see what this truancy case is about. Why, what, what's going on? Why, why is it such a big deal? Yes, yeah, so I'm going to be talking about the case of the DeFabio family from back in the 1950s. And unfortunately, it's a pretty sad story. And before I really get into it, I just want to be sure and warn everyone that from here on out, we're going to be talking about uh, some difficult issues like suicide, child abandonment, and mental illness. Well, thank you for that warning. And uh, so who were the DeFabios? The DeFabio family uh, came to Dare County from their home state of Virginia in January 1950. They lived in an abandoned Coast Guard station north of Kitty Hawk, where they were apparently squatters. The family consisted of Frank DeFabio, his wife Theo DeFabio, and they had three sons, Dennis, Nikki, and Teddy. Theo was the sole provider for the family, and she was actually living in Washington, D.C. at the time and working full-time as a taxi driver, but she came home and spent the weekends with her family, and they all intended to make Dare County their permanent home as soon as they could save enough money for housing. So where truancy comes up is the DeFabios were actually opposed to sending their sons to Dare County's public schools. Um, they were both really intelligent, they were well-educated, and they had a lot of really strongly held personal convictions. And they believed that they were better qualified than the public schools to actually teach their children. Um, the Norfolk Virginia Pilot, which is um, a local newspaper in Norfolk, indicated that Theo originally applied for a permit to homeschool her children and had been denied, but the couple decided to keep homeschooling them anyway. Well, that's strange. Why was it such a big deal? What happened? Uh, so, although the DeFabios seemed to be generally well-liked by those who knew them personally and they were very happy with their new community, uh, they were actually experiencing some animosity from local politicians and county administrators. And Theo actually attributed this to the fact that Frank had spent some time in prison um, in the late 1940s 
as a conscientious objector during World War II. And she believed that a few powerful men in the community were actually trying to start a smear campaign against him due to just kind of their disgust with him for being a draft dodger. So by December 1950, um, the DeFabios had been going back and forth with the county and attempting to homeschool their children. And Frank DeFabio was actually taken to court for violating Dare County's truancy law. During the trial, he refused to answer the solicitor's questions and he was held in contempt of court. And he was found guilty of truancy and assessed a $5 fine, which he refused to pay. So because he refused to pay the fine, he was sentenced to 30 days in the Dare County Jail. Frank's family, Theo and the kids, were in the courtroom that day, and when the sentence was announced, uh, Theo inexplicably kind of ran from the courtroom and drove off in her cab, leaving their three children to ultimately be placed in the care of the welfare department. And while Frank was in jail, the children actually were enrolled in school, um, so they attended school for that 30 days, but as soon as he was released, he withdrew his sons from school once again. Wow, what what a wild scene in the courtroom. I mean, just running out and, and driving off into the sunset. I mean, it's just like a movie. But, you know, it, it sounds like they, they had some strong feelings about homeschooling because once he's once he does serve his 30 days, which I'm sure cost the state more than the $5 he was going to get, but that's, that's not, neither here nor there. Once he gets out, you know, he goes against the court ruling and withdrew the, the kids and, 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 and homeschools them again. What, what happens next? Yeah, so uh, he obviously had very strong feelings about homeschooling, but actually uh, it may be less about homeschooling than some of us might think. Um, the DeFabios believe that, that really at the core of their objection to this was that they should have the support of their public representatives in doing what they believed was right for their own family. And Theo wrote a letter to the editor of the Coastland Times newspaper, which is Dare County's local newspaper, in 1951 that said, quote, Whereas we do not believe in fighting hand-to-hand -hand combat with people, we believe that fighting with true and just ideas will win the world for right for all. This is a day of suffering for all, and we're not looking to get out of it. We are demanding the right to face it and to fight it with everything we've got. Men who think of their jobs instead of the responsibilities and moral purpose of their jobs are the ones who are dragging down the whole world." End quote. So she wrote this letter to the editor of the uh, Coastal Times, and in fact, that editor, D. Victor Meekins, for the most part seemed to agree with her. And in a January 1951 editorial column that he wrote, Meekins blames the DeFabio controversy pretty much entirely on just local politics. Uh, he points out that many local families had flouted the compulsory school attendance law for years before the DeFabios. It was not uncommon to keep your kids out of school. But because those families were voters and taxpayers in Dare County, local law enforcement and politicians chose to look the other way, whereas for the DeFabios, who were kind of outsiders, um, they chose to pursue them. In mid-April 1951, Frank DeFabio was arrested again, and this time for vagrancy, which is uh, um, uh, essentially uh, kind of amounts to fam familial neglect. Um, and he was also charged with violation of compulsory school attendance laws again and contributing to the delinquency of a minor. And after about a week in jail this time, Frank attempted suicide, but he was quickly taken to the hospital and resuscitated. Uh, the children were again given over to the care of the welfare department and they were again enrolled in school while their father was recovering. 
Neo DeFabio, who was still in Virginia, was alerted immediately, and she soon returned to Deer County, where she began an extended protest at the Deer County Courthouse, demanding that her children be returned to her and that all charges against her husband be dropped. So meanwhile, while all of this, this is going on, uh, Frank began a hunger strike, and he refused to eat until he was set free. And after several days, he was so weakened by hunger that he was taken back to the hospital to recuperate again. And his trial was delayed until he was healthy enough to appear in court. So this drug on until May 22nd, 1951, when Frank was found guilty of violating the compulsory school attendance law and of vagrancy. And the vagrancy charge specifically stemmed from the fact that Frank chose to keep house and farm his land rather than work a, a paying job to support his family. And he didn't own property and he had not earned a wage in over a year. So that charge was later dismissed, but he was sentenced to another 30 days in jail. Uh, in a separate trial, the DeFabios, as a couple, were found to be unfit parents, and their children were made officially wards of the state. I mean, it's amazing. We've got media battles, we've got hunger strikes, we've got jail time, and then ultimately they're, they're made wards of the state, all because the DeFabios wanted to homeschool ostensibly. Uh, it's, it's sort of escalated dramatically from its origins. So what's the next step from here? Yeah, so it just kind of keeps escalating from there. So on June 14, 1951, Theo attempted to kidnap her children from the home where they were staying in Wanchies, which is a local uh, township here in Dare County. She took them to the jail to see their father, where they were forcibly removed from their parents' arms by law enforcement officials in a really highly publicized altercation and returned to their foster home. And the scene was uh, so traumatizing and so, so dramatic that that night, Frank again attempted suicide, again was rushed to the hospital, and survived this uh, second attempt. Uh, from there, the case dragged on for another year. And in June 1952, Theo apparently again attempted to kidnap her children from their foster home. This time, she loaned her cab to an unidentified man and woman who visited the children and tried to force one of them into the vehicle. The DeFabia's involvement in this incident was not definitively determined, but one of the boys positively identified the cab as their mother's. So we just keep adding drama, we keep adding drama, now we've added kidnapping. How does the story end? Well, the DeFabio children were finally returned to their parents sometime in 1954, um, so they were away from their parents for a, couple, a few years, uh, all told. And the family remained in Deer County for about another year before the boys relocated to Washington, D.C. with their mother in January of 1957. And what's interesting here is that once they moved to D.C., Theo immediately enrolled her sons in the Fairfax County Public Schools. But the problem was the state of Virginia had recently implemented a law designed to preserve school segregation, which required every enrolled student to apply for placement in a specific school. Theo was a conscientious objector to segregation and refused to participate in what she believed to be an unjust and oppressive system, even though she really did want to keep sending her, her sons to school at this time. So in kind of an ironic twist of fate, uh, the DeFabio the boys were actually removed from the Fairfax County school system and ordered not to return until the application had been signed, forcing Theo to homeschool them. So her you know, situation kind of switched. She pretty quickly after that decided to return with her children to Deer County, where they attended the local schools there. 
That is a tremendous irony. But now they're, you know, in school here in Dare County, and it's all it's all good, right? They graduate and have everybody's happy, and, and it moves on, right? So, unfortunately, not really. Um, so, by 1960, and even before that time, Theo and Frank's marriage appears to have deteriorated, and they were really kind of estranged from each other. Theo and the boys um, sort of went back and forth between the states, and at one point they were again living in Virginia, and Frank actually got to the point where he threatened to leave home permanently if Theo returned. And she did just before Christmas of 1960. And when that happened, Frank immediately left the home and drove to the Great Smoky Mountains National Park in East Tennessee, where he was very soon after that found dead from a self-inflicted gunshot wound um, on Christmas Day. And so after Frank's death, uh, the family was, you know, again, had been, had been squatting in the Coast Guard station that they'd, they'd occupied for about 10 years. And they were finally, finally formally evicted from that um, station. And then shortly after that, Theo was brought to court again in 1962 for failing to take her youngest son, Carl, to school. Um, she refused to pay a fine and was instead given jail time, but it's unclear how much time she actually served. Afterwards, uh, this whole sort of ordeal appears to have just left her destitute. Um, she frequently picketed at public buildings in both Washington, D.C. and in Dare County in an attempt to obtain monetary aid. Um, and despite being arrested multiple times for vagrancy, she continued picketing and her personal form of protest was, um, I think, carrying a mattress around and sleeping on the steps of public buildings until, uh, unfortunately, her, she did ultimately die from a heart attack in 1969. And what's um, really, you know, the, this is obviously a very sad story for all all people involved, but the, the voices that have almost totally been lost in the story are actually those of the DeFabio children. So what do you mean by that? We, we, don't, we don't know what happened to them, and, and, and there's not a lot in the records, or what, what do you mean? Yeah, essentially that. So uh, what's interesting about this case is that it received national attention. Um, Theo DeFabio's position, first originally in Dare County, uh, just wanting to homeschool her children, but also later when she relocated to Virginia and she became an advocate for integrated schools. Um, she, you know, she was very vocal and, and, and very public about her beliefs, and she frequently wrote letters to the editor. She frequently appeared in local newspapers. And um, people from all over the country saw her story and, and, and empathized with this family and really kind of uh, reacted to it in, in almost a defensive way, you know, wanting to, to support her and wanting to support their parents' rights to decide what to do with their children. So it was a very highly publicized case. But what's missing is any kind of uh, testimony or com commentary or interviews or anything like that with the, with the DeFabio children. At no point do we ha get any sense from the records of how they felt about this process, about whether they wanted to go to the public school or they wanted to be homeschooled by their parents. Um, we just, you know, in, in newspaper articles and in Theo's letters, the, the kids honestly aren't really even mentioned that much beyond just saying they're not going to school. Um, so because of that, not only are we missing their voice and their response to this sort of whole tragedy, we really don't know what happened to them after that. Um, 
We know that they did, you know, eventually attend public schools in Deer County for a while. And, you know, there's isolated mentions of them actually doing really well in school, especially um, Teddy, her oldest son, uh, did very well in school. Um, but after they uh, become adults and kind of move out in the world, we really just kind of lose track of, of, of the DeFabio family, um, the DeFabio children in particular, um, in the historical record. But what's interesting to me about this whole case is there's a lot of really great connections between the DeFabio kids and Kaya in Where the Crawdads Sing. Um, so you, you have these kids who are essentially um, estranged from their mother, who um, eventually are kind of abandoned by their mother at points, who live with um, an eccentric father who kind of forces them to uh, live and, 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 and exist in a, a home that's not really what we would all consider to be a, a, a typical home. They live in a life-saving station. Um, and they end up sort of uh, involved in this whole truancy case. Um, and at the end of it, they, they turn out to be, at least from what I can tell, really good kids. I mean, especially Teddy uh, does really well in school, makes the honor roll, goes on to go to college. He's really smart. He's really involved in his, um, in his school and, and, and just does really well. And so it really kind of um, it reminds me of Kaya's experience in a lot of ways, of having to grow up without any real kind of adult supervision and still trying to find a way to carve out an existence and carve out uh, some form of success in spite of all of that. Yeah, I mean, I think you're absolutely right about that. This this idea that, you know, you you you're connecting it to the book, and I think it's really interesting. This the, that they did do well despite having a lot of things stacked against them, um, in a traditional sense. I mean, you're, if you're going to court all the time, that's that's time you're not spending learning. That's time you're not spending working on your 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 homework, pr your projects, whatever the case may be. That's that, that that's. That can be really uh, that in and of itself can can set you back, and then there's these added pieces with, you know, uh, difficulty in, in in family going to jail, and then finally um, Frank dying, and then the mother dying, and all of this. It, it it's it certainly was traumatic for those kids, but but that's really fascinating that we don't know much about them, and it's. What is also fascinating is I feel like we have so much about this case across repositories, and yet we're mi missing that a huge piece of that puzzle there. It's it's really amazing. But thank you for sharing what you do know about the case. Thank you, thank you both for connecting the docs for us and sharing the knowledge and the research that you've ga gathered here. Thank you for listening to this episode of Connecting the Docs, outlining the milestone battle over education in the Outer Banks. Stay tuned next time for a dive into Eastern North Carolina oyster wars. Thanks to our guests, Samantha Crisp and Josh Hager. Thank you to our voiceover specialist, Tiana West, to our producers, Brooke Chuka and Shauna Carr, and finally, to the voice you hear at the beginning and end of each episode, Judy Allen Dotson. Thanks for joining us this week on Connecting the Docs. Make sure to visit our website, connectingthedocs.podbean.com, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or via RSS, so you'll never miss a show. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. If you like this show, you might want to check out our blog, 
History for All the People at ncarchives.wordpress.com.